but it, but it's a mindset change, right? People like us come in and say, you know, you know, move fast and break things and, you know, trust us. And we're going to go off and do talk to 50 people remotely and then come back and give you some insights. But we don't know yet what those insights will be. <laughs> I mean, I love that, but I can see why for people who aren't bought into that way of thinking, it's quite challenging or can be. If when I see that, for example, exactly product managers are like, wow, okay, this is changing and this is saving me money and this is making me um, or this is helping me make a decision way easier way better a stitch in time saves nine and if you do the right research and understand the user needs up front you can save a lot of time and heartache and money yeah i love this moment where you're actually it's not even the well-known aha moment but the moment where you know like oh we just saved so much money and heartache and and you know sweat and tears and Hi, I'm Mike Green, a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Welcome to Understanding Users. In this podcast series, I chat with digital experts from a variety of disciplines, including user research, UX and service design, development and product management. And there's even a founder or two. I talk to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and the challenges they face in designing and building digital products and services with users in mind. And while many of these conversations are recorded remotely, I'm also keen to get out into the wild and meet my guests face-to-face where possible. So in some episodes, you'll hear me prowling the corridors of UX conferences in different parts of the globe to get the views of speakers and attendees alike. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to announce that Understanding Users has a sponsor. Have you or your team ever struggled with getting the right types of users at the right time to speak to in your research? Have you wasted hours emailing to and fro with research participants trying to find a convenient time to speak to them? And after all that, have you found yourself speaking to the wrong type of participants for your product? Or worse, simply have participants fail to show up at all to a scheduled research session? Well. Ribbon is a continuous research platform that lets organizations do user interviews and in-product surveys in real time with customers as they use your website or apps. User researchers, product designers, and product managers all use Ribbon to quickly and effectively validate product decisions with real users, helping them build products that attract and retain more customers. Ribbon is an end-to-end research platform, helping you target participants within your product, manage research incentives, run surveys and interviews, and store and share your findings. To start running in-product user interviews or surveys today, head to ribbonapp.com to get started with a free trial. Links are in the show notes. Tina Lichkever is a senior user researcher and strategist and host of the UX Research Geeks podcast, where this conversation is also being published. She originally began her career in marketing and later found her calling in user experience. She co-founded and managed a service design studio that helped corporations as well as startups. And she's also led multidisciplinary teams, enabling them to build insight-driven products. Rather than me just asking the questions this time, Tina and I thought that we would have a chat and interview each other about our own experiences in UX, about podcasting, about how and why we do what we do, and about the challenges of moving fast and breaking things through digital transformation in organizations. So we're going to try something different today, and uh, I'm talking to another UX podcaster, Tina Lakova. Hi, Tina. Hi. 
Uh, and we thought we'd just get our brains together and kind of have a little chat and, and share uh, our experiences, both kind of professionally within the user experience world and also of, of UX podcasting, because obviously there's a growing number. Um, but it's great to have you, Tita, on the show. Nice to chat. Thank you. Thank you for the idea, because we had the same idea, kind of like, but you reached as the first on LinkedIn. And I was like, yay, great minds think alike. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about um, yourself, Tina. Like, what, what's your kind of day-to-day -day role? Um, we'll come on to the podcast in a minute, but uh, and what's your sort of journey into to digital? I yeah, journey into digital. Yeah, my framing uh, uh, in the journey of digital <laughs> was I was working in HR consulting. And after two years, I kind of started to hate it because I didn't any... Uh, I, like I didn't anymore uh, trust the product that we were selling. And I had this framing, like, I want to do something on the internet. We are talking 2010, right? Uh, and I joined an advertising agency. And that was after two years there, uh, you know, there was a explosion of Facebook apps and competition on Facebook and uh, social media as we know it now. And I was just trying to... Explain to my clients how it works. So I started to work uh, on my first wireframes. Then I found out, oh, there's something like UX. And then the story goes like, okay, there's something as UX research. And that was my professional aha moment of, oh, people want to pay me for this. I will do it because it's nice. And I get to speak to people, get to learn because I'm super curious. So, and from there, you know, I had my own company. I worked for com several companies as a UX analyst, researcher, and now I am more in the research op space, which is also a lot of fun, uh, trying to learn how it goes in big companies, in big IT companies, where the maturity of UX research is not really high. So that's the current challenge, I would say. What is your current challenge? Uh, my current challenge? Um, I think... Well, I think the word maturity, you just used it there. I think uh, it's amazing. You know, I've I've worked in the um, UK government for, for a number of years as a contractor. So I originally started, actually, I'm a linguist originally by training. Ah, um, okay. and, I, and I've lived in, in various parts of the world, kind of working and traveling. And then I got into digital publishing quite a few years ago. Um, but sort of that felt like it was a, not a... Uh, an industry that's having challenges, you know, it was a bit like kind of the record industry and photography and stuff, tr trying to stay kind of contemporary and relevant with the, the massive explosion of the internet about 15 years ago. Um, so got into UX, yeah, did a, did a master's and pivoted into UX about a decade, just over a decade ago. And uh, kind of like you, just, um, I just love it. You know, it's great to be in something that's so fast paced and transformative and so many lovely people we work with, you know, generally UXs are a nice bunch. And, uh, you know, we get to do stuff like this, which is great fun. Uh, but I think the maturity, as you were saying, you know, maturity levels of organizations varies. And, and funnily enough, UK government, which kind of one would think would be slightly government be behind the curve in terms of, you know, slower than the private sector is very much not the case in Britain. You know, UK government with the GDS, government digital service about 10 years ago, very much embedded kind of user centered design in, in the way it builds digital products and services. Um, so it's been great to work with a number of parts of the UK government for, for quite a few years now, and then moving on to kind of other sectors and finding that actually their levels of maturity are a bit lower and they're, you know, you're having to kind of upskill them in terms of what is agile, what is, you know, you can actually talk to your users, you should talk to your users before you start wasting time and money building things which nobody wants or uses. So uh, that's a challenge, but it, it's fun. 
how did you end up in, in uh, government space? Because that's super interesting for me, to be honest. Um, it's kind of semi-accidental. I had basically I had a, a friend, uh, a good friend of mine, had kind of started contracting, and he. Um, he got a contract with HMRC, which is Her Majesty's Revenue Customs, which is basically the tax department of the UK government. And he he said, uh, do, "There's a there's a role going here. Do you want to come and you know dip your toe in the contracting water?" So we started there. Um, uh, I started there about oof, seven eight years ago, and never looked back really. And since then, I've done stints in uh, education, the Department for Education in the UK. I've done stints with the Cabinet Office. Um, uh, Ministry of Justice, the Foreign Office, and what's interesting is a lot of the challenges they face are very similar. You know, each department, sort of the subject matter experts, and I'm sure this is familiar to you. Everyone thinks their problems are unique, but actually, in terms of digital transformation, the problems are very, very similar consistently. And it's just a question of, and actually, the advantage of I found of contracting is you can do lots of similar work in different places. You get lots of experience of different subject matter domains. Uh, and then you can use that and bring it on to the next place and say, well, look, you know, you're not alone in what you're going through, that other, other people are struggling with similar things. And these are some ideas that have worked elsewhere. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I, I majored in political science, so that's why I'm asking. And I never had a chance to be actually in that space of uh, the official or the, uh, the state services. I don't know if I would be, like to be on that side in Slovakia, to be honest. Uh yeah, our politics and uh, digitalization is not the best, although there are very good people working on it right now. But yeah, <laughs> that's why I'm asking. And, and it's, it's true that in Britain, it's it's very well done. It, it is one of the benchmarks that we have. There is a group called uh, Slovensko Digital, Slovakia Digital, who has a benchmark like when it comes to front end, it's UK. When it comes to the back end, it's Estonia. In the yes yeah services so yeah yeah estonia has topped the poll for a number of years maybe not now but it certainly did a few years back in terms of the most digitally advanced governments i think in the world like estonia was regularly number one which is which which is great to see i wonder if there's something to do with the kind of the size and the fact that you're you're starting relatively from scratch you don't have some of the legacy issues but 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 you're in vienna now is that right you're in yeah europe I'm yeah. in Vienna, Austria, which is just 60 kilometers far away from where I come from, from Bratislava. So it's right. a, a, after moving here from Berlin, it was very surreal. Right. Being an hour at my mom's and eating lunch. <laughs> nice. nice. So, uh, yeah. And uh, it's, but it's, <laughs> I mean, a lot of things are different. A lot of things are the same. The food is probably mostly the same. Also, when it comes to desserts, it's surprising. Like, oh, we have that too. Just a little, there's a little piece different, but that's it's the similarity. But the mentality is different, of course. I mean, 40 years of communism made something to a country, and uh, Austria didn't have this, as well as the history and traditions and uh, Slovak people being under their uh, empire, Austrian-Hungarian empire. That brings a lot of other perspectives on, yeah. Mm. And what about that? That's fascinating. And what about sort of digital maturity levels? Is is Austria kind of way ahead of or ahead of Slovakia in terms of? No, in, it's the other ways around. Oh, really? Yeah. If what, you look at the Eastern Bloc, uh, we kind of like we 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 are poor or we were poor countries coming from very poor poor circumstances. 
but we had the advantage of like nothing was there after the wall fell after 1989 and a lot of people and also it's the ambition level that eastern european have you see it now in ukraine the people are still working there they are in their basements and working and have a stable internet better than somewhere well else in western europe and our uh, the digitalization for example governmental in ukraine is also way ahead of other countries in slovakia it's a problem of, about corruption why it didn't happen that way that it's supposed to happen uh, but when it comes to, for example, even when I was living in Germany, I was surprised how many things are on paper or that somebody asked me to send a fa- fax. And I was like, what? Uh, so in Slovakia, you are really used to, of course, not all services are uh, good, but when it comes to commercial services, you are all very used to some kind of standard and stable internet anywhere you are. And then you go to countries like Germany where it's, it depends where you are and it depends on so also the mentality towards digitalization is different. We don't care that much about data privacy. Germans do care about data privacy immensely. You, I also saw the difference when I was testing with Germans and immigrants, uh, how they were looking into details about like my, how my privacy is protected was a different way of uh, researching it on the websites or on in the apps that I was working on. Oh, that's really interesting. So in terms of kind of usability testing with different populations, yeah. there's more interest from, from, for example, Germans, you said, in terms of kind of privacy notices and how the data is used. It, it sounds super stereotypical, but it's this, uh, yeah, I could really see in tests, oh, it sounded a little bit like the request to the recruitment agency was even weird. Like we want to p- have people who are German born and raised uh, but we really wanted to explore financial mentalities or mentalities when it comes to money of Germans or people who had the most background living in Germany. But there was already a difference how they approached the app, how they registered, what kind of information they were looking for. And there was always this touch point, like, how is my privacy being protected, which other people didn't look that much into. I mean, depending, maybe it's also the thing, okay, I'm being tested I look because it's a good manner to, you know, look into it when I'm, you know, I should be looking into it. But it was interesting that there was this very natural reflex of German nationals to Mm. explore the privacy. So what kind of organizations have you worked for, worked with Tina and what kind of sort of products and services have you been involved in, in terms of digital? Good question. I mean, I, I would say I'm an all rounder, but the most I was enjoying till this point was finance. I'm, I'm like, I'm one of those weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, my mom is a banker and I grew up uh, talking to her about with her about money a lot in a sense like, okay, there is the saving account and maybe we should invest in this and investing into real estate makes sense. And discussing these things. So when I joined Neugelb, which was a service design agency of the second biggest German bank, Commerzbank, right. it was very natural for me to look into like, okay, what is what is out there with, which would help me to understand people and their mental states when it comes to money? So I was exploring financial psychology, the typologies in, in, uh, with people. And I found different models on how people have what kind of relationships they have uh, to money, stuff like that. And it was super interesting. 
that was really fun to do. And and how did you do that research? Was that kind of in person? Were they were they remote sessions? I mean, uh, I started really like classically desk research, looking into studies, and then trying to figure out okay, how does this apply in real life when I speak to real people, and combining this uh let's say official typologies from the desk research with the real life. And we were there back then doing personas, which is, I know it's a triggering word in our <laughs> business. <laughs> I mean, you say persona and people, I don't know, uh, want to slap you. And I'm still thinking like, yeah, but you, you just have to use it properly. Yes. Um, yeah. They have their place, but they're often yeah. misused, don't yeah. they? I agree. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you have any favorite methodology that you go back to? I met, well, one that I, I've used a number of times, I, I don't haven't been able to go back to it that often, are diary studies. I mean, the thing with diary uh -huh. studies is, I mean, yes, obviously, I, my bread and butter is remote research sessions, typically an hour with kind of a variety of stakeholders and, you know, users and kind of understanding their needs. I mean, shadowing is always good. If you can go into people's offices or, you know, places of work or homes. These days, post-COVID, it's harder. But in terms of, I think just... Yeah, I just love diary studies. It, as I say, it takes, I'm sure you, you've done them yourself. It takes a lot more setup. It takes a lot more kind of handholding, but there's nothing like that kind of longitudinal, whether it be a week or, you know, at most a couple of weeks, probably um, people's regular use of something or interaction with the service uh, and then giving you feedback as you go, because they're doing it at different times of day. They're doing it in different places. Typically, they're doing it in different contexts, maybe on different devices, and you get a much more holistic view i think than just putting a single prototype in front of someone in a one-hour session and saying you know let's go through this together so so that's kind of one of my favorites and how, how about you i'm i will just stick with the diary studies but actually i never did one i mm. was always close of doing one but it was always a matter of like oh we don't have the budget for it or we don't yeah. have the time for it or it's not anymore needed and this is the thing where I probably see when I look at the US and UK market, it's already a practice that is well established. Uh, in the German market, I could say, okay, it's already there as well. But it, then you have smaller markets like Austria, which is 8 million people that is non-comparable. Mm, 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 and that's, I think there is this connected link of like, oh, the small market and how many or how much do you go into research and how much do you want to spend on stuff? So I did a small thing of like, okay, let's let's build this group in WhatsApp and ask people there just on a daily basis something, but that I wouldn't say it's not a diary study. So Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the example I always use, and actually there's a case study on my website, um, researchable.uk, <laughs> it's in the show notes, um, where I was working with the department in, in here in the UK, and it was during the pandemic. And as that rapid response to homeschooling and the challenges that lots and lots, well, millions and millions of families faced across Europe and the world, but with the focus mm -hmm. on Britain, is that the department wanted to get technology solutions out to, to 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 families and children particularly disadvantaged children so that was in the form of you know hardware devices so there were tablets and there were laptops and so on and there was also in parallel with that kind of connectivity solution so i was working on the connectivity bit and they had this idea to well we can either offer um hot wi-fi you know hotspot vouchers or we can offer like physical routers little little boxes to send out to people um and uh, they were proposing to send lots of these kind of uh, you know either solution out rapidly 
and obviously, you know, not an insignificant cost to the to the taxpayer. Uh, and I sort of said, because I was in a fortunate position of being, you know, in this small team with quite a lot of clout, I sort of said, well, hang on a minute, have you tested either of these solutions with with families to see if they work? And uh, and the sort of light bulbs went on and people said, well, well, no, we haven't. So basically, I did a diary study where we, focusing particularly on the Wi-Fi solution, we we, we, we gave a bunch of families these, these vouchers and said, you know, um, there you go, knock yourself out. And, you know, if you can just, here's a short Google survey. Uh, if you could just reply every day, just telling us about, and it was, you know, as short as possible, very simple to fill in um, what your experience was and the experience. That, and then we followed up with them at the end of a week uh, and had another conversation with them and sort of heard about their experience. So we had basically the beginning and after chat kind of in, a, in depth, but we also had the feedback as we went through. And the the feedback came through quite clearly that, they couldn't get online and they couldn't stay online that the the, the wi-fi solution didn't work uh and if it did work it certainly wasn't suitable for kind of sustained homeschooling where children needed to be online for hours so uh that was so we you know we flagged this i flagged this to, to the to the team to the department and actually to their credit they listened and they, and they can that solution and that was that to me is proof of the power of user research because it was on the back of that piece of research um you know, I ran it, but the team was involved. Um, that they they sort of pulled that solution. So I think um, you know, again, it's it's one of those things where a stitch in time saves nine. And if you do the right research and understand the user needs up front, you can save a lot of time and heartache and money. Because I think there would have been families struggling to get online had these solutions gone out en masse. So yeah, I love this moment where you are actually. It's not even the well-known aha moment, but the moment where you know, like, oh, we just save so much yes. money. And heartache and, and, you know, sweat and tears. and. <laughs> like. I remember one situation we were doing a design sprint with designers. It was still at Neugeld in Berlin. Um, and we called some users and we were just showing them some flows really on big flip chart papers put together. And we were explaining them the flows and just asking them on their insights. And... We were actually thinking about like asking the users few questions for the beginning to explore how they think about money, how they want to save money, da 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 da. And one girl was just amazing. She was like, "Wait, wait a second. You want to ask me this right here in the beginning?" And we were like, "Yeah. What do you think about it?" She's like, "It's like going on a date with a guy who directly asked me on the first first date if I want to marry him." <laughs> I'm like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a pretty strong one where we realized, okay, we first have to win the trust right. in order to ask these type of questions. And then a beautiful structure came out. Like, these are the questions that are okay. These are the questions that are in a further on on the road. And these are the questions when we already have you as a stable client, I would say. So, so what is day to day? What does a day to day kind of work look like for you, Tina? You know, in a, in a, in a... oh, now it's writing a lot of diuretics. Right. Okay. Which is <laughs> honestly, it's killing me. I, I won't even sugarcoat it. Uh, but we need we need to tidy up. And my uh, lead was just like, okay, let's bring it together. That we are we are a new team in the organization, so we are trying to really establish. The basics. So it's like trying to figure out, okay, how do I write this ticket so it's understandable if anybody comes to our Kanban board and wants to know where we are yeah. at. Uh, but it's uh, really looking into the research ops uh, basics, I would yeah. say. 
because I was a little bit surprised uh, when I look at my hiring process and then me joining, I realized that the maturity of the organization when it comes to UX research is way lower than I anticipated. Right. And there are still like basics missing. Yeah. And two big topics, and I'm I'm hope I'm not saying something that I can't, but are like okay, guidance right. typical. There's a lot of materials out there, of course, on the internet where you can learn and stuff, but having it a little bit on a like tray, like okay, this is how we do it in our organization, learn this and you will be fine. So, so hang on, when you say guidance, what you 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 mean guidance for the organization in user centered design? Uh, user-centered designs and UX research right. as well, because uh, the, the, the ratio is we have three U, UX researchers uh, and me as a research operations specialist right, right. now, and the organization is 4,000 people, wow. so we need to go and scale yeah. up. And also the organization is a fair believer that PMs should be talking to customers, which I am all yeah. as well. And I, and I kind of like have the task of like uh, enable people to do research and to do it yeah. well. So we are not diminishing or jeopardizing the craft, but we still enable people with, you know, workflows, processes, tools, infrastructure to do it and to do it well and not to. But it's obviously it's uh, when people approach me, we have a format where I, which I call research advice. Right. People come to me, say what they are trying to solve and ask me what kind of method and what, what will be the research approach and how it, usually the uh meeting ends up is like oh wow that's a lot of work yeah <laughs> it is <laughs> you'll come to my world yeah but it but it's work done up front that saves time and money later right that's the key thing and that's what people yeah. don't get i find is that yeah what is your favorite part in the whole research process Ooh, in the whole process i think mm. is um i mean it's a cliche to say it, but talking to the users i you know i, I it's we're very privileged in many ways that we can parachute into people's worlds. You know, having worked across a number of, as I mentioned earlier, kind of different government departments. I've one particular thing I was I was traveling out with. Um, we were working on this um, uh, piece of work for the Ministry of Justice, and I traveled around with bailiffs in their van, going to people's houses. I mean, it wasn't particularly cheery work, but it was it was it was a fascinating insight into a whole kind of aspect of the world that I've never really happily had to encounter, where. You know, bailiffs were going out with with letters of of demand for people who hadn't paid bills, um, kind of and were struggling, and they were, you know, and I remember meeting in a in a in a court building before we spent the day in the van with this guy, and and I said, you know, do I get out of the van? He said, no, no, you mustn't get out of the van. You know, I haven't got a stab vest for you. You're not trained. If something happens at the door, so I'm, this sounds really negative. It, I mean, it was quite heavy going, but it was fascinating. So I stayed in the van. We pulled up, and I watched him go to people's doors and kind of. Most cases, nobody was there or nobody answered the door, as you can imagine. Um, and then, in, kind of in the next project, we were doing some uh, research with governments overseas. So, a bunch of people from the government digital service spent time doing a discovery in places like Kuala Lumpur and um, uh, Jakarta, talking to various parts of the, the you know ministries of the government out there to understand kind of how they, how they did public procurement. So it's it's so varied and it and it's it's yeah it ne it never gets boring because even though the methodologies are similar, um, mm. the the context is always different. At least that's what I find. How about you? For me, it's hard to say it because uh, I am a person who constantly goes between introvert and extrovert. Sometimes I wake up and I don't know who I am. Right. right. <laughs> 
Um, but it's definitely the privilege of having both possibilities of like, okay, I'm talking to people, I'm really enjoying it, I'm learning so much, especially when I'm not in the mindset. And sometimes it's that that, that trap happens, like I already know about yeah. this. But if I go back to, okay, I'm learning, then that that's very high of, of a high value. Um, but then I love the part of analyzing, like really going yeah. through the videos, for example, and coding it and bringing it together and bringing it. I'm also very visual type. Right. So I'm always trying to somehow summarize it in a visual way for the clients or for the companies that I work internally with. And then again, the part of extroversy comes into it, but where I'm more of a service where I really try to go into discussions with people mm. and not just like, you know, click, click, click another slide and present mm. it, but okay, what do you think about it? How, uh, to see how people can empathize, where they struggle to empathize, where they don't understand when they go through what I called, I don't know if, if it's a term, but post-rationalization. It's I, I met it a few times where product managers were like, we came with new incidents and they're like, oh, oh, oh we already have that in backlog. Like, yeah. Do you or do you, are you just, yeah. you know, putting it there so it makes sense and you don't have to come up with new ideas. Yeah. Um, so that is also for me. And if when I see that, for example, exactly product managers are like, wow, okay, this is changing and this is saving me money and this is making me, um, or this is helping me make a decision way easier way better whatever but but it's a mindset change right this is what i'm finding with with my current client is that you know there's a there's a bunch of people bought into it and they're very supportive of of kind of outside teams like us and are keen to kind of demonstrate this way of working but there's an awful lot of people for whom this is a like user-centered design is a completely alien way of working and there's this endless call for you know you know tell us by x date uh, what you will have done you know, what you will have delivered. And, and we're like, well, we don't know. Like, we've, we've just finished a discovery. We're about to start an alpha. Um, but, you know, by, I don't know, three months hence, what have you, you know, what what will you have found out? We're like, well, that's the whole point. We don't know what we found out. You just need to trust us and you need to let us get on and discover. And it's really, you have to keep putting yourself, again, be user-centered about it, put yourself in their foot, footsteps and go, okay, for them, it's probably quite threatening as well because people's reputations and, you know, they've got their own budgets, they've got their own teams. They're trying to, do the best work they can with the opportunities and situation they've got. And, um, you know, people like us come in and say, you know, you know, move fast and break things and, you know, trust us. And we're going to go off and do talk to 50 people remotely and then come back and give you some insights. But we don't know yet what those insights will be. <laughs> I mean, I love that, but I can see why for people who aren't bought into that way of thinking, it's quite challenging or can be. Yeah. I mean, uh, I remember one, and I think I'd already told the story somewhere about Oh, it was in Prague. We were running a big design thinking workshop for um, a big telco company. And I had a team I was co-facilitating and I had a team of like really product and project managers. Uh, And I think I had a team just with guys. So not even a female element were any, and they were really masculine in the stereotypical way like what is the goal what is the goal i want to have the goal i was like you you heard the embrace uncertainty thing this is the moment where you have to embrace it they were like but i'm I'm struggling i was like yes this is it's hard and uh i was more in on that in that day trying to figure out how to 
it was more of a psychological facilitation right. <laughs> how to calm them down but we actually get got there but they were still like oh this is just so open that i can't deal right. with it and that's also research what is research about yeah now? yeah yeah and you you talked about analysis earlier i'm interested to know kind of how how do you because it's one of the things i i you know challenges i've I wrestle with sometimes you you know you let's say you've done a few rounds of research you've got maybe 20 30 hours of, of great insights from a variety of user types and you've got all of this kind of insight it's then transferring that into something meaningful and concise that you can put in front of stakeholders you know how do you go about that I was multiple times asked this question and honestly I don't know my brain just works that it needs to sort things out. It needs to go to brackets, to categories, to stuff. So I would, if I would put kind of, it's like a mapping, uh, it's coding, deductive, inductive. It doesn't matter yeah. if you tell me, okay, this is the taxonomy. Let's try to find there or come up with the taxonomy. It's just very natural for yeah. me. Uh, so I can't really explain it. But for me, I very soon start to think about, okay, how am I going to, when I, I'm when you already start to see the patterns, okay, like this is coming out and this is a big finding and this is a big insight on com, uh, how do I present it to people? Yeah. How do I make them actually have this? Oh, okay. And what I love is also to show them, this is what I'm always looking for, for contradictions, or I call it contradictions, like people telling me something in the interviews or tests, but doing something completely mm -hmm. different or telling me that they would. I had this when I was recently uh, interviewing a friend of mine in the Slovak podcast about male feminism. He was like, I want to talk about masculinity with more men and I want to explore the topic and I want to find out what is masculinity. And I was like, uh, but are you doing any of that? Because he was sending me articles as a friend about this topic, but he was never actually reading right, it. Okay. So if you want to do it, but you are not doing it, that's the contradiction that I see. And he was like, oh, yeah, you were right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is, and also, for example, when I was researching that um, in the space of financial psychology, it was, I want to have an a multi-banking app where I put everything, but I won't give you my data. Right. Like, uh, wait a minute. Right. So, yeah, you know, this is what th I There's a fascinating case study I read on Medium ages ago about, I think, a researcher from Netflix or one of the streaming platforms, and that in all the research they'd done with users, particularly when it was with uh, parents, you know, they would ask them about parental controls. All of them, you know, almost to, to a man and a woman said, yes, we would definitely want parental controls on the platform. We would definitely set them up. Obviously, we want to look after our children. Um, and that was that was the kind of feedback they were getting from the in-person or kind of remote research sessions. And they looked at the analytics and the, the kind of um, settings, profile settings on the platform. And the percentage of people who were actually using the parental controls was a fraction of, you know, those who had said, um, Yes, we are. We, we want it. So, kind of exactly to your point, what people were saying, what they were doing, were completely different. And that's the kind of that's the delta, isn't it? And that that's where the interest, the interesting, the insightful bits sit. Closing or uh, going into the end for me, it's super interesting. What was your personal motivation for your podcast? 
so understanding users is my, is my podcast they are a little plug um and we'll, we'll put <laughs> kind of uh, links to both our podcasts in, in the show notes i'm interested to yes. hear about about yours as well um I, I just i think for a bit of fun i wanted to start something kind of on the, on the side just uh you know I've, I've had the fortune of working with lots and lots of great people uh and you know i've had lots of fantastic guests on who've been very generous with their time and sharing their kind of knowledge and insights and it's sort of grown over time uh, and i try and get a variety of guests so kind of heads of ux uh you know lead user researchers i've had some business you know startup founders on uh and kind of conferences as well i'm doing more of so going to to conferences particularly now they're back in person, you know, in the post-COVID mm. world. And, and you get a real buzz in it, and actually recording things live in person at a conference, you can hear the buzz in the background. And what's wonderful is how excited people are to be back face-to-face, kind of meeting others and sharing and, and so on. Um, but it, it's fun, you know, doing this sort of thing is, is great. And, and, and tell me a bit about your podcast. Uh, well, it started, I, I came to Vienna April two years ago. And I was like, okay, I'm back home in the middle in middle of Europe, and I want to do two things. Uh, I was thinking about a community of researchers in Middle Europe and Eastern Europe, but I was like, I'm not really a community manager, right. uh, and that's a lot yeah. of work. And then I was like, maybe I do the podcast, but I was super scared about the technical side right. of things. And then Barbara, who was a marketing manager at the UX Tweak approached me and she was like, oh, we would like to have an interview with you for this. They have a serial women in UX. I was like, oh, that's boring. I can't just, you know, fill out some, you know, document and you publish a a article. That's like, I, I, some people can, but me in writing, trying to answer some wise questions is just not working. So I was like, oh, you should do a podcast. And she was like, we are not going, definitely not going to do a podcast. But what about you doing the podcast? I was like, okay, that's that's a match. <laughs> and I was, and then I was just like, after we uh, ended the call, I was like, what did I just said yes to? But they are supporting me on the technical side and on the marketing side, which is a very high value. Yeah. Um, and it's working out pretty well. And my my kind of purpose was, to bring people there because there is a lot of and dominancy from US and UK coming because that's also where the business mm. is the biggest mm. when it comes to user research. Yeah. Our big countries like Germany. But I was thinking, okay, let's bring more people, more research traditions into mm. it. Uh, so I'm we are really trying to go for okay, what are the interesting user researchers from Asia, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, Latin America. Mm. Although Latin America, we probably didn't have yet. There is a plan. Um, and honestly, also, let's bring more women into the mm. mix. Because I think user research or research overall is more female dominated. But for that, female are not that much seen. And leader positions are more men, again. So the feminist, out of, again, jumped out of me. and was like, okay, let's bring girls into the mix or non-binary people. Uh, and yeah, that is something that we are, uh, trying to have the diversity there as well, but just not, not just to speak about it, but to live it. And how, how often do you publish an episode and how many episodes have you done? We do now every three weeks or once a month, uh, because I decided to slow down and uh, we found that the pace we had was a little bit too much. Uh, 
Now we are changing a little bit the concept. We are making sure that we will make shorter episodes with, uh, you know, focus on really just one topic and not talking yeah. all the research universe like we are doing now, but it's a different yeah, story. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so that is how we, how often we publish. You do every two every weeks, two right? weeks, and it it's a it's a fair amount of work. I mean, it's enjoyable, but it, to your point around kind of uh, yeah, to keep that pace up because you've obviously got to be looking out for guests and and then scheduling in the recordings, doing the recordings, editing. But uh, you know, people are very generous with their time, and uh, and I think that the shorter format, uh, you know, is 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 keeping keeping the quality uh, by keeping it short. I think is a, is a really good idea. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm aiming my, my audience is, you know, essentially kind of variety, really people experienced in, you know, I'm keen for people who maybe even experienced in, in this world to kind of hear from others, practitioners, also people kind of juniors coming into it, people thinking of, of moving into UX, hearing a variety of voices, but also I think organizations that want to do more kind of in terms of user centered design, um, hearing kind of more about what we do and how we do it, um, I hope is of value, um, and yeah, and it's fun, isn't it? And it, it, it's, it feels to me like a natural extension for what we do in our day jobs is just talking to people, asking them questions, teasing out insights. It's great. Yeah. Although it's it's what I said in the beginning when we were kicking it off, it's hard to find the niche between, oh, I'm still, it's, it's a UX research show and I'm a UX researcher. I'm being watched and how I am asking questions. And it's also not my language course, or German where I'm better as well but i am here to entertain people this is for entertaining and people to you know give space not give space not to talk too much yeah. so this is what i still didn't figure out and that's also fun yeah. but i still didn't figure it yeah. out yeah well i mean it, it i think first and foremost is enjoy it because if one enjoys it hopefully that comes through in the recordings yeah. and you put your guests at ease and and, and so on um, but i think that you know the podcasting world is, as we were saying earlier on is exploding um, and there's there's more and more sort of podcasts coming of, of all sorts. And I kind of think if people want to, if they want comedy, you know, I don't pretend, try, pretend to be a comedian, so they can go and listen to the comedy podcast. But uh, hopefully there's something insightful and useful in the kind of the, the episodes that, that I and we put out that, that, that kind of interest people. But it's, uh, yeah, it's great. It's great. Before we wrap up, Tina, can I ask one favor that I... Um, yeah. I, I do this with all my guests, the three-card challenge. So I've got... Oh, yeah, I heard. So I've got three yeah. playing cards here and I've written, I mean, we've touched a little bit on some of this already, but I've written trend, technique and tool. And if you don't mind, what I'd like you to do is just pick a card. We'll pick through, you know, one. we'll go through each of them. and just... I don't know the English names of ah, okay. the card, but I picked the J. So the Jack, uh, Jack of Clubs is a technique. We kind of touched on this, but is there a, you mentioned sort of diary studies, but is what's your sort of go-to technique when it comes to, to doing a, a piece of research? I mean, as I am, for example, in UX, when I'm more on the strategic side, not on the research side, I always say pen and paper, write it, yep. you know, that it goes through yep. your hand. Um, but when it comes to research, I really love the concept of open doors from psychology, from psychotherapy, right. where it's like you have your script, you have a guideline, interviewing guideline, but then there is, you are speaking to the person and you find, uh, you suddenly see, oh, wait a minute, there is this topic being just open up the open right. door and do i want to enter do i not want to enter because i will the conversation will slide somewhere else so thinking about what doors are opening for me in the conversation is a constant thing that i have in my mind it, maybe it's not a technique itself but yeah 
that would make I love sense. that. That that's really nice. And it's that I guess there's a a, a confidence thing in being able to do that, and that comes with experience. But I suppose the counterpoint to that is always, you know, one is against the clock. Then about you, but you've got your broad list of questions that you kind of want to ask, and you're looking at the clock and you're thinking, I've got, you know, an hour of this person's time. I've got these points I want to kind of cover off, while at the same time, as you say, letting people kind of steer you. So it's a uh, no, it's, uh, yeah. But that that's the constant thing of like, yes, I want to explore it and I want to go where the person is letting me go as well. I need to bring it somehow yeah. back to what is my yeah. goal. And that's the combination of like, my inspiration comes from psychotherapy yeah. and from journalism, which is very goal driven. Right. And doesn't do any kind of like ice breaking. You just go straight yeah. away to the politician and like, and you want answers. So these type of things are for me the most biggest exploration when it comes to techniques. It, it's funny you say that because it drives me mad listening to much as I, you know, there's the radio in, in Britain, you know, radio news in the morning. They're very closed and they're very leading questions always. Do you think that X, blah, blah, blah? Are you confident that blah, blah, blah? And I sit there going, no, if, as a researcher, there's absolutely no way I would ask that question or I certainly wouldn't ask it like that because you're, you're, you know, you're asking it with the intention that someone's going to give you a binary answer or that you're going to get a particular you know, answer, which is the antithesis of what we're doing in some ways. Yeah. Last question for my side, two questions. Uh, how much or with what are you affected in your personal life as a researcher where people are telling you like, oh, this is you being a researcher? Is there anything like that? Um... Like this example was one of one of it. Like, okay, you are listening to the radio and you are like, why are they asking this type of close question? Is there anything? Um, it's funny. The other thing that I think, you know, you know, those pop up surveys that you get when you use, you know, websites or services. Can you give us five minutes of your time to reply? And I always used to say, no, 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 go away. But now I try and put a professional hat on and I say yes. And I go through the surveys and I go, oh, I wouldn't have asked the question like that. And what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, what do you want? What, 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 what's your outcome? You know, what, what are you trying to understand with that question? That's badly worded, or the Likert scales, the wrong number of points, or whatever. <laughs> it's really sad, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, I get you. I totally get you doing yeah. the same. Uh, where can people follow you? Um, so I'm on LinkedIn, um, uh, and yeah, hopefully um, we can put uh, links in the show notes. Um, and uh, so the re- uh, sorry, the podcast is called Understanding Users. So it's on it's on Podbean, understandingusers.podbean.com, but it's also on Apple, Google, YouTube, Spotify, you know, the usual places. Um, and that, yeah, they're the they're the main places really. And yourself? Uh LinkedIn, because I don't have any other social right. media. The podcast is called UX Research Geeks, right. because I like to geek out. And I think we are also on the most platforms, probably not really the same, but yeah, the most uh available ones uh and my link is my name tina l-i-c-k-o-v-a yeah. uh, come on sorry before before we wrap up so let's do two more cards okay. if you don't mind okay the, so queen. the queen is trend so this trend. is an interesting one what do you what kind of trends in user research do you foresee your but now I, of course, you were also mentioning it to maybe talk about it, but I don't have much clue. Uh, I'd see artificial intelligence is going to change definitely what we do and what everybody yeah. is doing. And I use, for example, uh, ChatGDP to help me with the gyro tickets. Right. Today. Interesting. 
I shouldn't say it out loud, but it helped me a lot because I am not a native speaker. I, I know how to write in English, but if it something helps me, yeah, I'm completely okay. And it was it, there were some things that I just copied paste and then I. Yeah, um, yeah. Last yeah. one, Ace is the tool. So, kind of, what's your go-to tool? The existence of repositories is a very important step in our business. Because having the opportunity that uh, you have everything in one place and uh, your data are stored GDPR compliant somewhere and you can right away analyze the videos, you can do short video snippets so you don't have to use another software for, you know, bring it to the stakeholders um, and you can code it there. That's, that's a game changer definitely for me and they're available for also for freelancers. Uh, so... I think that is changing a lot or changed a lot in the last couple of years for me. Tina, it's been fab. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for, for chatting. Thank you so much as well. Really nice. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users podcast. I hope you found something of interest that you can take away and use in your own role or organization. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. You can find out more about our sponsor, Ribbon, and their rapid continuous research platform at ribbonapp.com. Links are also in the show notes. Join me again next time while I'll be talking to another experienced digital professional and asking them to share their wisdom, tips, and knowledge. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.